Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. My name is Josh Evans, and I'm one of the authors of On Eating Insects, Essays, Stories, and Recipes. Give us a little bit of background on the Nordic Food Lab's involvement in the insect project. Sure. Um, so Nordic Food Lab uh, is a nonprofit organization that was founded by Rene Redzepi, who's the chef and owner of Restaurant Noma in Copenhagen, and also by Klaus Meyer, who is this um, sort of Danish gastronomic entrepreneur who was the other co-founder of the restaurant. They founded the lab in 2008 as a space where chefs and scientists and farmers and different kinds of researchers and practitioners in food could come together to try and uh, investigate the edible potential of the Nordic region. Um, so from the beginning, it was really looking into all these different sources of, of uh, possible flavor, um, whether in wild plants or different shellfish or through different fermentation techniques or with insects, um, to try and sort of either resuscitate some of the flavors that from foods that used to be eaten in the Nordic region but maybe had been forgotten about, um, like certain wild plants, for example, or in some cases, uh, investigating flavors in the Nordic region in things that have, you know, are eaten in other parts of the world, but don't really have a history of being eaten very much in the Nordic region, like certain seaweeds, for example. Um, and so the insects project was sort of part of that larger context of trying to investigate, trying to look with the sort of fresh eyes and fresh tongues and palates at all of these different possible flavors and foods that we're overlooking all the time, um, and we don't even necessarily realize it. Uh, and so that the sort of impulse to 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 work with insects was part of that sort of more general impulse to look at the landscape in a new, more diversely edible way. And how did you come to entomophagy, the fancy yeah. term for eating insects? <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of fell into it, really. I um, I came to Nordic Food Lab shortly after finishing my bachelor's degree, um, which I, I took, I'm from Canada originally, but I took it in America. And, um, and one of the first things that I started working on when I came to the lab, which was in the summer of 2012, was to help put together uh, the, the application for the grant that we ended up getting, which gave us funding to do this sort of three-year in-depth research project into the gastronomic potential of insects. Um, and at first, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I have a particularly kind of strong uh, passion for insects. Um, and if, you know, if I had to choose a group of organisms that I'm particularly excited about, it would probably be microbes, but that's another story. Uh, but with the insects, it became really fascinating to me because it sort of, it raises a lot of these much more general questions about food and eating, like how different human cultures decide what's food and what's not food, and how these processes of sort of food preference are sort of hugely diverse across the world. And particularly, I think for me, how this line that all of us, all of us draw between the edible world and the inedible world is something that we're doing all the time. And every meal that we cook and eat every day, we're constantly drawing and redrawing this line. And sort of, especially through this insects research, I really came to see how that line between the edible and the inedible is sort of, is really, is shaping global food systems in really profound ways. 
Um, and I think the insects sort of research, whether or not you want to eat them, is kind of, at least in my opinion, it's kind of secondary. The primary point of interest here, I think, is getting eaters to think more deeply about what we, what we think is edible and what we think is not edible and why. Speaking of edible and inedible, eating insects has long been taboo in the West. Let's kick things off with the nutritional benefits of insects. There's, this kind, of, there's kind of a simple story out there, which, which is the sort of dominant narrative right now. Um, and it's also largely how we began the project, which is based on sort of a, a handful of, of um, laboratory studies uh, trying to quantify nutritional value of protein and fats and, and micronutrients like vitamins and minerals, for example. Um, and also some that are looking at things like feed to food conversion ratio and the you know, sort of efficiency with which insects can, can turn uh, feed into food, which seems by some metrics to be, you know, very much better than, than more traditional livestock. I guess the story there is, is those are the main arguments that many people are using to say, well, because by these metrics, insects seem to be the sort of silver bullet, we should all just start eating way more of them. But actually right now, now that the field is sort of growing a bit more and more people are getting into it, some of these findings are starting to be complicated a bit more, which I think is a really good thing. So people are starting to be a bit more precise about what kinds of methods they're using to quantify nutritional value, for example. I mean, there's a recent study that came out um, that's going into, that's trying to analyze, not just sort of taking protein as a, as a really crude category, but saying, okay, there's different kinds of proteins, and some of them are di digestible by humans, and some of them aren't. Uh, so when we analyze the protein comp composition of an insect, we have to be sensitive to those differences. Um, similarly, there are more and more studies coming out that are really trying to go deeper and trying to analyze more precisely exactly how what we mean by sort of the degree of improved efficiency that certain insect species are supposed to have. Um, and while I guess I tell this story because while it would be kind of more satisfying to paint this very simple picture of how they're the silver bullet and they're just going to save the world, I think that increasingly the science and the research is, is painting a more complex picture, which I think is a very good thing because it, it forces us to be a bit more critical and to take a step back and maybe move a bit more slowly on these, on these things. Why do you think Westerners have had such a hard time looking at insects as nutrition? Um, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly true. I mean, at least right now, the, the difficulty seems not, seems not for Western eaters to see insects as nutrition. You know, and increasingly people are actually quite okay with seeing them as like a sort of abstracted source of protein or, or, or minerals or things. The challenge, much greater challenge seems to be to get people to think about them as food, as like, a sort of uh, something that they would actually want to eat rather than feeling like they have to either abstract it away into a flour or a powder and then, and then sort of hide it in another form. Um, but I, and also, I mean, this historical angle, it should be said that even as recently as the early 20th century, there, there are multiple recipes within Europe even of certain insects being used for food. Like in Germany and France, for example, there are re records of... Um, of recipes from cookbooks in the 19th century um, detailing a method for preparing a soup using, um, in German they're called Maikäfer, um, like June, I guess that would be literally translated as May beetle, but like May beetles, June beetles, cockchafers, um, 
a particular recipe that sort of turns it into a soup with served with veal liver on toast. It actually sounds really tasty. Um, and so, and then that's not even talking about some of the existing sort of ongoing traditions in Southern Europe, like with the, the kasumarzu, the, the sort of cheese that's ripened with fly larva um, in, in Sardinia. That um, sounds awful. It sounds really awful. And it's actually really tasty. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. And I guess I think one, one way that we might, we might think about it that makes it a bit more easy to think about it for those of us who haven't tasted it or seen it is, um, you know, we can kind of think about it as comparable to like a blue cheese. You know, in a blue cheese, the mold, the blue mold is injected into the middle of the cheese and then it ripens the inside of the cheese. The, the fungus produces enzymes that break down the proteins and the fats in the cheese and they turn the paste really creamy and that's where all the kind of spicy tastes come from. Um, as these enzymes are breaking fats down into smaller fatty acid chains and producing lots of different aroma molecules. And essentially, in the kasumarzu, the same really similar kinds of metabolic processes are happening. It's just that they're not happening with a mold. They're happening with a larva. But um, isn't the, lar the larva alive? Yeah, they're alive. So the larva, the fly lays its eggs and then they hatch. And then the larva eat through the paste of the cheese and they're yeah. only eating the cheese, right? So they're digesting this like hard, it's usually they start as like a kind of hard pecorino style cheese. And then as they digest the cheese, um, their digestive tract is all of the enzymes in that are breaking it down into like this creamy, spicy, delicious um, paste. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's really, it's really remarkable actually. I'm going to have to try that. You ought to. <laughs> You should book a vacation to Sardinia just in pursuit of the Casamarza. When we're, you're pushed to compare insects to cows, chicken, or pig, the insect mm. will win out every time in terms of greenhouse gases, land usage, water, and feed input. Right. So this sort of goes a bit back to what we were talking about a bit earlier around sort of different ways of trying to measure the, uh, the sort of sustainability potential of insects, we could say. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of the existing data does seem to show, uh, you know, vast, uh, advantages with resource use like water and, and feed, um, and also fewer outputs like greenhouse gas emissions. I think that's very well established. I mean, that, that's, that's not work that we did. That was work that was existing, um, and, and done by, by sort of other scientists, and we sort of review that a little bit, a little bit in this book. But I think now what's needed more is trying to, you know, we're sort of in the phase of the research where it's like early days and there's just been lots of hype and everyone's really excited about these very preliminary statistics and these preliminary sets of data. And I think what's needed now is like a bit more uh, of, a, of a kind of critical eye um, and sort of research that really tries to replicate these studies and to suss out um, the extent to which they're true and maybe some of the variables that might change them. Like, for example, a lot of the study, very, you know, few studies have actually gone as deeply into the energy requirements for raising insects in certain parts of the world, because many of these insects, like crickets, for example, they actually need pretty warm conditions to be raised in. Like in the tropics, you don't really need to worry about that because the climate's often pretty warm. But in more sort of northern climes, uh, like in northern Europe, for example, um, that's not true. And so to raise crickets, you need to actually have quite a bit of energy input in the form of heating. Um, 
And there's not nearly as much research on that. But if we want to gain like a big, you know, an overall picture of the complexity of the sustainability potential of insects, that kind of research is, is really crucial to get right. Um, it's not enough to just say, oh, well, insects use a lot less water and they have a, few, a lot fewer greenhouse gases. So we should just raise lots of crickets, especially if we're in a place, a part of the world where energy is really expensive, for example. Name a couple of societies where insects are in everyday cuisine. Oh, there's loads. Um, and I think that's, that's one of my, maybe one of my favorite parts of the book is sort of the middle section that's all about uh, all of all these different stories from our fieldwork in cultures where insects aren't just eaten, but where they're really a delicacy, um, where they're really valued for their flavor and for their, for their um, nutritional composition. Um, I mean, some of the places that we went to, and it was only a fraction of the total number of cultures we could have visited. Uh, we went to East Africa, we were in Kenya and Uganda, um, and we went to Mexico and Australia and Peru and Thailand and Japan, um, and even to some places in Europe, like in like we went to Sardinia and investigated this kasumarzu, this cheese, and also to some um, to some uh, insect farms in the Netherlands. So there's quite a big range. Yeah. What really caught my eye in this book was the insect mega market in Thailand called Talad Rong Kluia. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. My Thai is pretty pretty horrible. <laughs> okay, well, we'll go with that. <laughs> okay, profit margin seems so high, but there is a dark side um, yep. with the seasonal day laborers. And I read that women and children were processing locusts manually by pulling off their wings and they were paid only 14 to 17 cents per locust. Yep. In your book, uh, many species of insects reach remarkably high prices that exceed pork or beef. Yeah. So the giant water bug is a pretty fascinating case where, you know, that is one of the sort of delicacies of, of many parts of Thailand, um, not just as an insect, but just as, as a food. And it's mainly because the male giant water bug produces this insane aroma. Um, it's described in so many different ways. Um, like some people describe it as tropical fruit. One of my friends thinks it's about like, it's like smells like overripe pear. I think it kind of smells like, um, you know, it really is very reminiscent of like kind of artificial candy flavor, like kind of like watermelon candy aroma, <laughs> really fragrant. Uh, it's, it's insane. And it's used in different ways. One of my favorite ways is it's in, turned into a sort of chili paste called namprik. Namprik Mengda. Mengda is the Thai word for the giant water bug. Um, and it's pounded into this paste with chilies and uh, garlic and ginger and galangal sometimes and different. Yeah, it's really tasty. Um, uh, and it's, it's really valued for this aroma because it has this such, such a distinct, such a potent um, aroma um, that it's reached the point where it's actually vastly over-harvested in the wild and people are trying to respond to it in different ways. So some people are trying to raise it, such, like trying to rear it in farms, which, I mean, has varying degrees of success. I don't, I don't know if it's quite been nailed yet. One of, one of the essays in our book, the essay that you're quoting, that's sort of taking the, the, the Thai insect industry as a case study for how things might evolve, um, profiles a man who is actually seemed to be, seems to be doing quite quite well at raising the giant water bug 
Um, other people, you know, another route that people have taken is to try and synthesize that aroma artificially and then just sell the aroma itself by, and by, bypass the, uh, the sort of the insect entirely. But of course, like with many things like this, you know, it's sort of like the difference between real vanilla bean and, and vanillin. I mean, they're reminiscent of each other, of course, but, um, you know, the thing that makes vanilla so beguiling is that it's vanillin, but it's also lots of trace amounts of other things that give it that, that, that distinctive complexity of aroma. So, you know, true people who really like their giant water bug, they, they don't really, they don't see the, the synthesized stuff as equal at all. Um, so, you know, that, I guess, in answer to your question, yeah, it's really because it's this gastronomic delicacy that, um, that's becoming increasingly rare. And so those two factors together means that the prices just become ex- sort of insanely high. So let's go over some tasting notes of some okay. recognizable insects. Uh, let's start with crickets. So some crickets are really tasty. I mean, we had some in Uganda, some giant tobacco crickets, which are, you know, probably as big as my thumb. Um, and they were so big that the different parts had different tastes. So the abdomen was really sort of soft and mild and creamy. The legs were, you know, quite robust, actually. Um, they kind of almost very, very reminiscent of like, you know, a chicken leg in some ways, like a kind of dark, dark meat, dark chicken meat. And the head, the brains were almost like, um, they were, they were very savory and they're very juicy. You know, they really had this like beautiful, yeah, you could sort of suck, suck out all the juices. Um, so that was how was that cool. prepared? How did, how was that it's cricket just, prepared? That was really simple. Um, we had it on this beautiful polycultural farm in Southern Uganda and um, they live in the garden because they dig these little holes, and they only eat they only eat um, very kind of very soft leaves. So you often find them in gardens um, where young plants are growing. Sometimes some people see them as a pest, but they're really tasty. So other people sort of you know dig them up and and cook them. And we had them prepared very simply, sort of roasted in a pan over a fire with a little bit of vegetable oil for about five to seven minutes um, with some green onions thrown in sort of halfway through. And then we ate them with insanely ripe tomatoes and hot green peppers and some salt. Um, Yum. I'm salivating. I'm thinking about it. Um, So basically all all the flavor was coming from the cricket. It wasn't like you were, you put it in like broth or anything like that. The flavor was from the cricket. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, like, that was a recurring theme in many places where we had them sort of in more traditional preparations where the, the, they're really the star of the show. And often they're you know, maybe supplemented with other things um, or they're used as a kind of flavoring agent for vegetables or things like this. But, yeah, in, at least in that preparation, they were really the star um, and very, you know, prepared very simply so that their flavors could really shine through rather than heaping lots of stuff on them and sort of having them be this kind of nondescript uh, vehicle. Whereas, you know, other crickets that we've had, like there's a species called Grillus bimaculatus. Um, I can't remember the common name for it. Uh, it's sort of like a black cricket. They're, like, I've tried them a few different places a few different times. Like, they're just not, <laughs> they're just not very tasty <laughs> to me. And a lot of our informants on fieldwork also sort of had certain preferences, even among the cricket category, which is very interesting. What about termites? 
Oh, termites. They're so vastly diverse. Um, we mainly encounter termites in our fieldwork in Kenya and Uganda. Some places in the landscape there, you would go and you could, you know, you would just look out at the landscape and there would just be termite mounds every like five meters stretching until the horizon, like really remarkable. Um, uh, I'd say, you know, a lot of, so within termites, there's different castes, right? They're a social insect. Um, and often, you know, different insects are eaten. Most commonly, they were the winged termites. They were the, the reproductive ones that come out of the mound uh, during the rainy season. Um, that were eaten most, although sometimes people ate soldiers as well, which are sort of the, the, the ones that protect the colony, that have these really big heads that are very crunchy. Um, they tend to have pretty similar tastes, like kind of nutsy, fatty kinds of flavors. Um, the, the, the termite queen, though, is something else. I mean, she is, uh, she's big. Her abdomen is maybe eight centimeters long um, and really kind of thick. Again, sort of the I don't know, maybe at least as thick as my thumb, maybe thicker. Yeah, I and mean, you can't wow. see my thumb. It's like a, maybe, you know, a thumb-sized sort of thing. Um, and her abdomen is this, like, swollen... Uh, my former colleague Ben called, called it um, God's handmade sausage. So you can imagine what that is like. Um, and it's sort of this, like, when she's alive, it's her egg sac. So it's just constantly kind of this roiling, moving, fatty sack and then you cook it very gently on a fire so that it so that the proteins kind of firm up and you slice into it and it's sort of soft and yields to your touch but it's still firm and it has this it's, it's totally remarkable it's like it tastes like sweetbreads and foie gras really yeah totally like not even joking like not even just saying it's a good insect but just as like as a food just like as a general food it was totally beautiful um, very rare, very difficult to get because you have to dig one out of a termite mound. It's often a strategy that's used to, um, like dis like displace a termite colony. So let's say a colony starts to build its mound in your wall, for example, because many buildings there have these like earthen walls and you don't really want that. Right. So some people will use different pesticides or gasoline or things to try and kill the colony. But a slightly more, slightly more labor-intensive but more elegant way is to dig out the queen, and then the colony will move somewhere else and elect a new queen and build a colony somewhere else, but they won't return to the place where, where they were. Um, and then you also get this really tasty thing from it. Um, I, I like how you call it elegant. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose in some ways. I can see her in, like, her caftan and... Come on, everyone, let's go. Right. I mean, it is a kind of violence also, but in terms of, like, pouring chemicals into the earth, it's, like, slightly less invasive than that, we could say, maybe. Um, or maybe that's just me being optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to ants. Yeah, okay, ants are really different. Um, often, okay, ants are a really good example of how the developmental stage yields really different um, taste properties. So many of the ants that we worked with and found on our field work, uh, it was the adult that was eaten. And th in that case, it was often used as a seasoning because the, many ants produce formic acid as a defense mechanism. And so they taste really sour. Uh, even though they're very small, they can have a really potent sort of acidic taste. So one of the insects that we used a lot in Denmark when we were doing sort of recipe development in the lab 
was an ant called Formica rufa, also known as the red wood ant. Um, and it was sour and sort of had this like taste, it sort of tasted to me like, uh, like a, sort of like a seared lemon rind. Like if you were to take a lemon rind and kind of sear it on the grill. Um, whereas other ants, like ones that we had in Australia, like the green tree ant, um, they, as they might, as they kind of sound, they're, they're this bright green color and they are also sour, but they have a much more kind of kaffir lime kind of flavor. Um, and the ants, in addition to their sour taste for, from the formic acid, they produce, like many social insects do, they produce a lot of different pheromones, which are aromatic molecules that they use to communicate with each other. It just so happens that a lot of these volatile molecules we perceive as aroma, which is pretty cool. Um, where, but then there's other ants, like the, the escamoles that we had in Mexico, in Hidalgo, sort of um, just north of Mexico City, sort of in the, at the, the opening to the desert, um, where it's not the adults that are eaten, it's the larva of the queen. So it's not, it's, it's the specific, specifically the, the larva that are destined to become future queens. So they're much bigger than the, than the worker uh, larva. Um, they're about, what's a good comparison? They're maybe like the size of my pinky nail, I suppose. Um, and they're very plump and they are also a huge delicacy. They come sort of, they're harvested in the springtime between March and May for about six weeks. And uh, they taste sort of like, a little bit like avocado, a little bit like green almond, and then also... Sometimes they have this really pungent smell that comes from the hive, um, which to me sort of reminded me of like a, like a, like a young blue goat's milk cheese. Um, so very complex, very tasty, often eaten in tacos. Does their diet, like for example, the ants diet, does that kind of determine what they're going to taste like? Sometimes. Um, I, I don't know if very much research has been done on that. I mean, I think there's, in some cases, there's a lot of traditional knowledge associated with this this kind of thing. So people who have lived in these landscapes for a long time and have accumulated a lot of knowledge over many generations about how the insects fit into the ecology and how their flavors might be affected by, you know, the time of the season or what they're eating or um, the time you harvest them, et cetera. Uh, I know that the escamoles, they tend to build their colonies, they tend to build their nests underneath huge agave cactuses, um, or cacti, I guess we should say. Um, so, and I don't know, but I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect the fact that they're, they're building these nests underneath these huge agaves um, might have an impact on their flavor, but that's pure speculation. Okay, the Bogong moth. Oh, the bogong moth. So the bogong moth is an interesting case because we didn't actually end up tasting the bogong moth. It was one of the few insects that we kind of did some research into, but we just missed the season for them. Um, we went. We were in Australia in March of 2014, and the season uh, sort of, I, I suppose, is like from like Fe it's like in February, like January, February, and sometimes extends into March. But we just caught the very end of it. So I, I got a sample of one that was given to me by, a, by a, um, an Aboriginal man uh, who saved it for me, but it was dead, and it was an adult. It was a dead adult that had flown into his house to, through his window, and then he kept it. 
but I never actually tasted any. But I hear that they taste really, really taste really remarkable. Like, um, like they're very fatty, and you kind of traditionally they would just throw lots of them onto the fire, and the wind the wings would singe off, and they would cook really fast, and then you just like pluck them out and just gorge yourself on them. Um, really fatty, really like yeah, again, really nutty, like maybe like almond sort of thing. Um, but unfortunately, I can't speak from experience for that one. Cockroach. Oh, cockroach is kind of challenging for me. <laughs> um, How come? Well, I've tried a few different species, and all of them have kind of been very, like, sort of ranging, uh, like, all kind of tasting like different kinds of detergent, kind of. They have this, like, very, <laughs> they have this very kind of, like, chemical sort of taste. But uh, I haven't tasted any where I'm like, yeah, that's really great. But again, maybe that's because I, I haven't, I haven't tasted them in a culture where their delicacy and where there are where's the where they have the knowledge to prepare them in a way that really enhances their flavor. But if you know, I hear I think in certain parts of China they have methods for preparing them in a way that is tasty. So maybe one day if I taste them there, I might sort of change my mind about them. Wasps. Wasps. Ooh, wasps are really, really yeah. Wasps are really um, great. I think. Um, but of course, again, it's like anything. It's, there's so many different species of wasps. I've tasted a small, small fraction of that. I think I've only tasted like maybe two or three species of wasp. Um, and probably the, my favorite one would be these Japanese wasps from the mountains in central Japan. The, the Latin name is Vespula flaviceps. Great name. Um, the Japanese <laughs> name, local, the local name um, in that region where we were was Hebel. Um, and there's a great chapter in the book all about the Hebel. And these wasps are really fascinating to me, not just for their flavor and not just for their culinary tradition, but also for the particular way that humans in, these, uh, in, the, in this mountainous region of central Japan have developed this very sophisticated practice of care, of caring for these wasps um, so that they can harvest them and increase their yield. So what they do, these wasps live in the mountain, in the forest in the mountains. And uh, like many... Uh, other wasp species, uh, and unlike honeybees, the colony doesn't sort of last over winter. It's just the queen that hibernates over the winter, and then in the springtime will lay its, her first eggs and start a new colony for the new season. Um, and so in the early spring, these wasp hunters will, or these wasp collectors, will go into the forest and they'll, they'll find, uh, they'll sort of find a wasp, they'll attract a worker wasp to a piece of bait, like raw squid often. And they'll tie a tiny little feather, a little, tiny little sort of string marker to this wasp. And they'll follow the wasp back through the forest until the wasp returns to its nest, which is very That's small. That's terrifying to me. Well, it's... It, By it's, the way. Well, they're actually, as far as wasps go, they're actually quite benign. You know, they're, they're really? not... Yeah, they're not super aggressive wasps. They're they're um, the, the Japanese describe them describe them with this word otonashi, which means um, sort of mild or like mild in character or um, demure even. And they use this word, which is very interesting from like an anthropological point of view, uh, also because that's a word that they often use to describe like the national character of Japanese people. And so there's this very strong identification with this particular species of Japanese wasp. It doesn't just have to do with it being really tasty, but also this kind of symbolic attachment to it as like a reflection of the ideal Japanese character. Anyway, 
So they follow these wasps through the forest, right? And they find their their nests that are very young. They're maybe no long maybe no long no larger than the size of my fist. And they dig them up very carefully. They put them into this small wooden box, uh, and they take them back to their home. And at their home, they have these larger wooden boxes, which are purpose built for the wasp nest. And they put the the young nest into the the larger box. And over the spring and the summer and the fall. They feed the nest sugar, rock sugar, and raw meat like chicken breast and chicken liver, uh, very rich meats. And um, they, the, the nest grows, and the, it grows much larger often than it would if it were just living in the forest, in the wild, because they have this, this access, such easy access to this really you know, rich sources of nutrition. Um, and then in the fall, there's this big festival and everyone in the region brings their different nests and they all weigh them. And whoever has the biggest nest wins the festival. <laughs> um, and then it, sometimes people will take them back and they'll process them and they'll give the wasp larvae as gifts. And sometimes they'll auction them off to people at the festival. And there's this, this, there's this, so there's this whole like social practice around giving these, this delicacy, this fall delicacy as a, as gifts. Um, partly because there's so much labor that goes into raising them and harvesting them and processing them. You know, you have to pick out each larva individually from the comb. Um, but the foods that they make with these are, are delicious. Um, and they taste like, they really taste like the forest. You know, they really have this, um, this really beautiful, um, kind of mossy taste like this. It really reminds me of like a, a certain kind of lichen, in the Nordic region called reindeer moss, which isn't a moss, it's a lichen, but that's another story. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really distinctive flavor. So what's up next for you and where can we find you on the web? Oh, well, so I, I mean, to be honest, I, I've kind of moved on to other, other things now. I don't, I still do a little bit of insect stuff here and there around, you know, around the book coming out. And we also made a documentary film about the project that's called Bugs. Um, which also sort of follows our, our, our field work around the world and sort of process of doing the research. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work still with some of the insects um, with a couple of colleagues, but mainly like I, I'm sort of, I'm doing other things now. This past year, since finishing up this book, I've been doing a master's in history and philosophy of science here in England um, at Cambridge. And I just finished that. And I'm gonna start a PhD in the fall um, he also in England, um, that will be looking into fermentation and um, looking at the kinds of human microbe relationships that emerge in novel fermentation practices and how they can comment on larger debates within like agricultural history around domestication, for example. I'm really interested in how, not only in how humans shape other organisms and the evolutionary history of other organisms, but also how other organisms shape our evolutionary history, sometimes in sort of unpredictable or unforeseen ways. On Eating Insects definitely makes us want to give insects a try. Thanks, Josh, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks for having me, Susie. Hi, I'm Robin Shapiro, co-founder of Seek, a new line of snack food products made with crickets. Tell me the story of Seek. <laughs> so I was inspired to create Seek after reading a report that was put out by the UN in 2013 that talked about 
insects um, as a really um, great solution to be able to um, solve issues related to uh, feeding growing populations as well as um, uh, for both people as well as animals. And it was actually supposed to be part of a much larger project that I was working on. I wanted to do essentially a sort of pop-up food gallery where you'd have sort of different rotating exhibits on the future of food and insects was supposed to be the first. But as I continued to dig into that article, I just was so captivated and there was just so much there to learn and to do. And I knew that I couldn't kind of leave this um, topic. So I decided to develop rather than an initial pop-up, a whole brand around it. The way I saw it was a, a pop-up would be able to reach, you know, a select number of people that, or in New York City who have heard of it. And I really uh, wanted to reach larger populations if I was going to try to really enact positive change in our food system. So that, um, you know, was a starting point for SEEK. Um, prior to then, I was working on a rooftop farm. Um, I just recently left my position as uh, deputy director for the Low Line, an effort to build the world's first underground park in New York. So I really kind of had been circling around projects that um, were quite unique in terms of how they were providing solutions. I mean, I've always loved food. It's such an amazing thing. It, it brings us together. It's tradition. It's pride. It's culture. Uh, it's spending time with your, your closest people. It's new. new it's educational. But I, I didn't want to work on something that I think was already being done. I think there's a lot of talented people out there doing great stuff, as well as a lot of, you know, issues that are in our food system. So I really wanted to push myself to do something that was, was quite different with a big um, potential to um, solve problems. What is SEEK doing to change the perception of insects from pests to food? Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely one of our biggest challenges. And uh, I think that education definitely needs to um, go hand in hand with um, the brand that I'm putting out there. So I've done a variety of things on the education front, both with youth as well as with adults. With youth, there's a really big educational opportunity here to learn about science and sustainability, you know, all while having fun. Um, and so I've uh, recorded educational videos that are being dispersed to um, schools nationwide. I've done in-school um, uh, sessions as well as at different events. And I think that when you can learn a little bit more about it, and of course with kids comes their parents, um, when you can learn a little bit more about it, it seems less scary. You know, also I've noticed in the way that I'm approaching the Seek product is with a really you know, delicious, familiar product that is, uh, contains ingredients that you're really um, comfortable with, and the crickets are well blended into it. Um, and I want to make a really positive um, cricket eating experience for people. I've been made people's first cricket eating experience, which has been thrilling, and, and people have said that they've really enjoyed the product. And I asked why they were so comfortable eating it if they were doing this for the first time. And I think that they say the, the brand sort of, you know, resonates with them. They have me directly kind of talking to them about it, telling them it's going to be okay. And after you get that first experience down, the next one and the one after that will be a lot more comfortable. And this is going to be part of our, our kind of daily food systems, not just food that we're consuming, but food that 
um, the animals in our lives are consuming too. And it's a really, you know, smart solution to get all natural protein that, that comes from the earth. I mean, the way I see it is why are we so much more comfortable eating chemicals than we are eating crickets? I think that that switch will click in people's brains because it just does, you know, make a lot of sense. And on all of my packagings, you'll see insect facts out there to just kind of remind us of all the ways that insects actually are really beneficial in our lives. One of the things I relate to the most when I say, you know, why aren't we, why aren't we comfortable eating insects? But we're really comfortable having honey. Um, honey, after all, is only bee regurgitation. So I, I think that with knowledge and education will come comfort. Seek Snack Bites was my first foray into eating crickets, thanks to you. Uh, I sampled the coconut cashew once. Can you describe it? Yeah, so coconut cashew is our most popular uh, snack bite flavor. And we blend um, cashews, coconut, a really nice spice blend that's a cinnamon, nutmeg, and ginger uh, together with cricket powder, uh, as well as dates that provides um, a lot of the bulk there. Um, some seeds in the mix too. And we blend it into this really kind of fun bite-sized form. Um, you might have kind of uh, seen similar products called like energy bites um, or protein bites. And the, the sort of bite form makes it fun to um, kind of just pop into your mouth. I say there's a reason we like eating candy as, as well as the fact that it allows you to not have to make such a big commitment when trying this big, uh, this new type of food. You can just have one little snack bite. And I think they're just like a great all-purpose snack. You know, you can have it um, in the morning, um, you know, in the afternoon for a little bit of an energy boost. Um, and the dried fruit does make them sweet. So they're even a great sort of kind of healthy uh, dessert at the end of the night. There's no um, refined sugar, uh, no, uh, they're, they're gluten-free, paleo-friendly, no dairy, no soy, and they're just made with whole, all-natural ingredients that are really good for you. I talked with Josh Evans a little bit about farming crickets. Where do you source your crickets? So I source my crickets from uh, Asia. I was over there in the December, January timeframe on a research trip. Um, I haven't taken research trips nearly as extensive as Josh, but, but what he did um, was just in incredible and I, I greatly envy. But I, I have taken a select number of trips um, to learn more about insects. Um, you know, as you might have, have talked about with Josh, you know, one of these statistics that's out there is, 80% of the world is eating over 2,000 forms of insects. So the question is, is where are these part, where are these places in the world and what are these insects? So I have decided to try and, you know, little by little, um, go visit places that have a tradition of eating insects. So when I was in Asia over, you know, December, January timeframe, I met with a bunch of people in the industry and a variety of ways um, many different parts of Asia have a, a tradition and, and industry around this. So I was able to meet and vet a great um, cricket supplier over there. Now, I, like many other brands on the market, am using a cricket powder. 
um, or cricket flour. Those really can be used interchangeably. And that's just 100% cricket, which is ground up into a powder form. So it makes it really um, easy and versatile to cook with. Let's talk about packaging. The packaging is, is really um, to remind us um, about a lot of the things I've been saying about the brand, that it's really inspired by the natural world. Um, the different um, packagings have the raw ingredients that are included in that variety in their sort of form when they're growing from the earth. A lot of the times it's sort of, um, you know, vintage botanical illustrations. You know, it symbolizes a few things. You know, first of all, looking to the natural world for solutions. I mean, this is what has, you know, sustained us for thousands of years of, of evolution. It is um, the sort of tried and true thing. So that's where I am looking to for this, you know, future of food um, kind of uh, solutions and, and really not to a world of, you know, chemicals and, and labs. I think food should come from the earth. That's the food that I want to eat at least. And, you know, the sort of vintage nature of these botanical illustrations is to remind us that actually people have been eating insects, you know, all throughout time, you know, as well as to kind of surprise us. Um, you might sort of look at the ingredients on the back and the images on the front and not know what that is. You know, a lot of people are surprised that, you know, the cashew one that you have, a lot of people might be surprised to know that, you know, cashews grow off of a fruit that looks like almost like an apple on a tree. Like that seems crazy if you've seen <laughs> any of the, the cashews growing in their whole form. And all I'm trying to say and remind people is like, if you just kind of um, have an open mind about things, you might be surprised and you might be sort of more comfortable with things than if you just judge it at face value. Does cricket flour taste like anything? Yeah, yeah. Crickets and cricket flour definitely have, you know, distinct flavor profiles. Um, uh, on, on, in general, they tend to have sort of a nutty, um, a nutty earthy flavor to them. And that's why I pair them with nuts. Um, it makes just like a really great um, combination. Um, but different cricket flowers definitely have a wide range of flavors. Um, you're roasting the crickets essentially before you're grinding them up. And let's just say like roasting coffee beans, you know, you can get quite a spectrum of different flavors. So there's, let's just say, um, in my uh, opinion, there's cricket flowers where I really like how they taste and one's uh, less so. That's so cool. <laughs> so what is up next for you and where can we find Seek on the web? Yeah, well, we have a lot of great things coming up with Seek. Um, we have a granola that we are going to be coming out with soon. A few other products in development. Um, we are sold um, in select stores um, around the sort of northeast area as well as online. Um, products can be purchased really easy, easily from our website, which is seek-food.com. And we can also be found at, at seekfood on, on all the social channels. So yeah, hopefully people will, will follow along with our story. You know, this is, this is just the beginning and there's a really lot of exciting things um, to come along. Um, also, I think uh, uh, we, we spoke about um, uh, the cooking class that I'm going to be doing on the, on the education front, which I mentioned. Um, I'm doing education for kids, but also for adults, sort of by request. 
I um, developed this cooking class, which I'm going to be teaching at, at Brooklyn Kitchen. And I will continue to have a lot of events surrounding this because, you know, per your question earlier, there, there just needs to be a lot more than just putting a product out there to get people to be comfortable with this. Thank you, Robin, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you. Subscribe in iTunes and follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book, on Twitter at I am Susie Chase. Thank you so much for listening to Cookery by the Book podcast.